0: podcast listeners. This is Patrick. Last week, Kobe and I had the chance to talk to Professor William McKean, a journalism professor in the School of Communications and the author of seven books, one of which is a biography of Hunter S. Thompson called Outlaw Journalist. In the conversation, we focused on McKean's work on Hunter S. Thompson, who was a gonzo journalism maverick and a literary star in the late 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Our goal was to place Hunter Thompson in a larger literary context. What does gonzo journalism mean exactly? What are its implications for literature, and how does it relate to the historical period Thompson lived in and wrote about?
1: Uh, today we want to talk to him about the life and times of Hunter S. Thompson, as his book is subtitled. Um, but we want to do that in order to place Thompson in the, the cultural and literary context of the mid-20th century when he's writing, because he, uh, by some views, sort of founds a new branch of journalism, or a new branch of literature, depending on the manner in which you want to look at it. So that's the goal of our interview today, is to place him in that context. Um, But let's just start uh, really with a personal note in how you came around to uh, meeting Thompson, um, to studying his work, and focusing on this period in American history.
2: Well, I was a newspaper reporter. I started in newspapers when I was uh, 14 years old and had just grown up living all over the country, reading great papers like the Miami Herald and the Dallas Morning News, wherever I lived. I uh, ended up working for a newspaper and becoming a fairly early adopter of Rolling Stone. And I began reading that when I was, again, 14, 15 years old. And I remember the first article that Hunter ever wrote for Rolling Stone, which was about his uh, campaign for the sheriff in Pitkin County, Colorado, in Aspen. And it was called uh, The Battle of Aspen, uh, Strange Rumblings in the Rockies, or some some name, Freak Power in the Rockies. And so I was aware of who he was. And I, I think I might have known a little bit about him before then, because I was aware that some lunatic writer had ridden around with the Hells Angels a couple years before and had been beaten up by them. I think everyone knew that anecdote, although we might not have known his name. So it was after the Freak Power article and then the appearance of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in the magazine. And then as 1972 was happening, I was covering a political campaign on a local level in Indiana and uh, I think all of us in the newsroom were devouring his reporting of that campaign, the presidential campaign in Rolling Stone. And so you know, I really felt he was a great uh, influence, uh, uh, a liberating creature in journalism. And then five or so years later, I was uh, a young professor at a university in Kentucky, and I got the phone call saying, Hunter Thompson's coming to town. Will you interview him on stage? And that's how I met him.
1: Mm. And so, going back to his early influences, a lot of people, I think, at a first glance, would have a tendency to connect him in the line of American literary journalism with the Beat Generation. But it seems to be that he doesn't necessarily take his influences from the Beat Generation, maybe with the exception of On the Road, as much as he takes his influence from Orwell... From Huxley, H.L. Meckin. So can you talk about, as he's uh, leaving the Air Force for being largely insubordinate, at least, but not getting discharged, mm-hmm. um, as he's leaving the Air Force and trying to shape himself out as a writer... And he has this very writerly notion of himself. He says, I'm going to be a writer. I'm not sure that I'm going to be a good one or even a self-supporting one. But until the dark thumb of fate presses me to the dust and says, you are nothing, I will be a writer. So as he's forming himself as a writer, can you talk about what influences shape his idea of himself as a writer?
2: Right. And I I think that uh, the escape to the Air Force from uh, he had been in jail for uh, assault Uh, The escape to the Air Force was kind of what helped him define himself. He decided to be a writer, uh, and he tried to be a newspaper reporter after that. I think most of his jobs lasted only a month. Uh, He had trouble coexisting with vending machines (laughs) and uh, got fired from a couple of jobs. But he decided to be a writer, and I think his influences were, in like anyone of that era, that generation, certainly there's got to be some Kerouac influence But I think the writer that really made an impression on him as a young man was Henry Miller. And I don't know whether he's forgotten today. I know that uh, the pop culture identity of Henry Miller in my youth, in the 70s, was as the guy that wrote all those dirty books. Mm. Because he wrote Tropic of Cancer, he wrote Sexus, he wrote Nexus. All of these books that had been uh, kind of uh, banned In America they were published usually by Olympia Press in Paris and you could get a copy and underline the the so-called dirty passages or whatever but the thing is Henry Miller also wrote uh, a lot of critiques of American society and one work in particular it's called the Air Conditioned Nightmare and it's about returning to the United States after the Second World War and seeing this new affluent consumerist society and if I were to show that to you and cross out the byline, you would say that was Hunter S. Thompson. Mm. So Henry Miller, was, Henry Miller was such an influence that at one point in his early years, I think about 1960, so Hunter was, what, maybe 23 years old, he moved to Big Sur, California, in part because Henry Miller lived there. And they lived fairly close enough that there was a group of mailboxes along the road where Hunter would pick up his mail, and that's where Henry Miller also got his mail. He would go wait by the mailbox, hoping to meet Henry Miller, and he never did. But the fact that he waited there kind of shows the devotion he had to that guy. I think he was also influenced by a lot of writers of fiction. I think J.P. Dunleavy, uh, his book The The Ginger Man was a, a great influence on him. Hunter was entirely self educated he was uh you know from the time he was a kid he would go to the library his mother was a research librarian go to the Louisville free public library and sit there and read you know Herodotus or Thucydides or whatever and and he's a uh in in some ways an indictment of the system of higher education in America because he never went to college he's a brilliant uh extremely well read young guy by the time he's 23, 24 years old. So he's an ab- absorbs a lot of influences. Kerouac, uh, Henry Miller, uh, Dunleavy, and, and a few other key sources. What also
0: seems unique about Hunter is that in each case of uh, some of his most like well-known um, works, there's Hell's Angels, in, published in 1966, right? 67, yeah, right. more or less. And uh, then, of course, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, 1971 or two. Mm-hmm. Um, they never quite started out as a vision for uh, a novel, at okay. least in, not in the conventional sense, and at least not in the same tradition as those writers we've been mentioning. Um, can you talk about that uh, that difference for Hunter... Um, how he always seemed to stumble into uh, these, you know, his greatest works. Um, And the... Was there a moment for him with both of these works um, where he had the assignment and at a certain point it became uh, a novel? How did he view it? Did he view it as... um, was it an accident? As much, was it an accident for him, um, from his point of view?
2: You know, in a way, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But they were both accidental. Uh, he was approached by the editor of the Nation magazine, uh, Carrie McWilliams, to write an article on the Hells Angels, because there's so much in the press about them. And I remember being a little kid and being so afraid of them because, oh my God, they go around with pliers and they pull out people's teeth and they're cruel and all this and. The press was full of that, and, and uh, the Kerry uh, McWilliams said, well, I should go do a story on him. So he walked into the garage where they hung out in San Francisco and just said, hey, I've read all this stuff. Is it true? And this was the first time that a journalist had really come to talk to the Hells Angels. Uh, all these stories about their exploits and their nasty deeds, they were all based on rumors. So the Hells Angels liked Hunter for having the cojones to come forward and speak to him and he wrote the article he invested you know enormous amounts of time got a hundred bucks for the article and it appeared and he was offered a lot of book deals for it uh he was always he said a lazy hillbilly and uh, he didn't want to do any extra work and of course all the publishers uh wanted him to uh you know, to come up with a proposal and a sample chapter and an outline and a marketing plan and, you know, the usual elements of a book proposal. I mean, when it comes to writing a book, that's the worst part. Writing the book is easy after you've done the proposal. One publisher, a paperback publisher, said, oh, well, you know, you've written that article. We'll give you a contract. We'll give you $1,500 now. And so he took that because it was the, the easiest thing to do. Uh, he was a lazy hillbilly, as I say. Interestingly enough, he sketched out in a correspondence with an editor at Alpha Knopf, you know, the best publisher in America, a book about how the Hells Angels were just part of this searching society. And it's really an epic about a generation that grew up with affluence, and now they're rejecting affluence, and they're, you know, on the road seeking some kind of nirvana. In short, he sketched out a much more epic book that, in some ways became the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe, mm. but he didn't go that way. He went for the, the easy money. And it was while he was in the middle of that book that his paperback publisher, it was going to be a paperback original, the editor went down the hall, uh, he was at Valentine Books, he went down the hall to an editor at a hardcover house, Random House, and said, you need to read this. This is really good. Implying it's too good to be just a paperback original, and that's how he got his random house contract, so that was another little boost of money. and the funny thing about the funny thing about Hell's Angels is that uh, he thought if he didn't finish the book on deadline that he'd have to give back the fifteen hundred dollars. that was the advance, only fifteen hundred dollars mm-hmm. and uh, And so he was only about halfway through and he was a week out from deadline. So I went and checked into a motel, got a lot, a couple cases of beer, It's right next to McDonald's, and he wrote the last half of the book in those six days. And uh, I always felt you could kind of see that, because the first part is so carefully written, and I think elegantly written, and then it becomes manic. And it kind of works with the, the subject. The thing about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is that he had actually been sent to Las Vegas to write a story for Sports Illustrated. In fact, not even a story was to be, in essence, a glorified copy block that would go with a photo essay on the motorcycle race. Uh, and he was supposed to write 250 words, something like that, and he ended up writing 40,000. So he was naturally ag- aggressively <laughs> rejected by, uh, by Sports Illustrated. But to him, writing the Las Vegas thing was something that he did to relax. He was actually working on a very serious piece of journalism, about the murder of a reporter in Los Angeles, a reporter named Ruben Salazar. And his key source was this uh, crusading attorney named Oscar Zader Acosta, who kind of saw himself as the Hispanic Martin Luther King. He was. It was very difficult for Thompson to get close to him to do an interview on this very serious story, although they were friends. Uh, Oscar Acosta had sort of developed this entourage around him, and they were very suspicious of the gringo journalist Thompson. And so when Thompson got the call to do an all-expenses-paid trip to Las Vegas to write the copy to go with this photo story, uh, he approached uh, Acosta and said, Look, this is a sign from God, Uh, all expenses paid in Las Vegas. Why don't you come with me? We'll have time to talk. So the trip to Las Vegas was done for this purpose of uh, interviewing this source for one story and then doing this quick money job for Sports Illustrated. And so when he came back and he started writing what he just called the Vegas thing, it's like he'd work all night in this very serious story about this murdered reporter. And then as dawn would break, he'd put on the Rolling Stones, get your yah yas out, crank it up. (laughs) And he wrote this thing as therapy and so when uh, his editor from Rolling Stone, he was writing the story on the Murdered Reporter for Rolling Stone, his editor David Felton came to visit. He saw this and he said, what's up with this? And he says, oh, that's just something I'm writing. You know, I don't know where it's going yet. And Felton ended up sharing it with uh, Jan Weiner, the editor of Rolling Stone. And, and Jan Weiner just said, keep going. And so both of these things kind of came out of accidents. Certainly Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas did. And he thought it was so strange, of course it was originally published under a pseudonym. He published it under the name Raoul Duke. And for me, being a kid, reading that story, I was just utterly blown away by it. Um, and I was so confused because it was written by this guy named Raoul Duke, but there were references in it to Hunter S. Thompson. So I didn't know quite what was going on. I was not a very sophisticated reader, but I certainly responded to the, the music of, of his language. And, uh, you know, that it, it, it's sad to me in a way that it was really the last time he ever rewrote anything. He began to realize after that and during the campaign coverage that people would take his first drafts. And, you know, they could certainly be polished. I mean, look at what he could do when he polished something. Look at mm-hmm. the lar- a large part of Hell's Angels. Look at Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas. When it's polished, it's just really just symphonic prose but he got to the point where he realized they'll take the first drafts, why should I work any harder and I think that's the lazy hillbilly in him coming out, and that's his term I don't Mm. mean to denigrate hillbillies that's Hunter Thompson's self-description and I think that that's in large part true, I think near the end of his life Mm. uh, from what I heard from uh, the army of his friends uh, I interviewed a couple of them said, you know, he really by the end of his life began to regret the fact that he had such a gift, and he didn't use it to its his full extent, to the gift's full extent, I should say. That's the
1: impression that I come away from when I read this book. And I, What's the name of the book? I don't think we mentioned that. I apologize. The book is called Outlaw Journalist, <laughs> The Life and Times of Hunter S. Thompson by... William McKean. This who is when I point
2: guys. out that I have seven children, and I would like to get them back to three meals a day. <laughs> so the more copies that you buy, the more opportunities I, I have to feed them. Well, our <laughs> no, no, no pressure.
1: Our, our guest here has also written some other tremendous books while we're on the subject, including Everybody Has an Ocean. Um, but uh, when I read the book, I get this overwhelming sense of tragedy towards the latter half of it. Right, um, because to me, so I, I had come across Thompson in high school when he was just it was just this cool thing that my friends and I were looking at. We go, oh, this Hunter Thompson guy. He's a wild guy who writes these really cool stories. And I had read uh, Fear and Loathing, and I had also read The Rum Diary. Mm-hmm. And The Rum Diary is originally written. Uh, uh, in the 1960s when he's in this phase Trying to be a very serious fiction writer Right uh, Which he never really becomes He never becomes a, a, a fiction writer As he initially dreamed of in the sort of Hemingway style And to me, uh, honestly The Rum Diary was uh, a more impressive work Because it, it, it was Hunter Thompson uh, Really putting the care into, into the work And you see that he has this gift And I appreciate it initially. Now I think I appreciate Fear and Loathing for its literary significance and its cultural significance. But at the time, I kind of appreciated it more as a high school kid for how kind of crazy it was. Right. Um, And so I wanted to ask you about how he comes around to this point when he's initially living in Big Sur, you know, trying to be a very serious writer, and then starts realizing he can get away with it. Um, can we talk about, uh, for instance, so we've talked a little bit about Hell's Angels and how he writes the second book in sort of this deadline crisis. Which yeah, the would second half. The second half yeah. of it. Sorry, uh, which would become his sort of M.O. Yeah. And then um, a story called The Temptations of Jean-Claude Kelly, where he first develops this sense of writing about how difficult it is to get the story which would eventually become the motivating force for um, the K- Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved, which becomes really the first work of Gonzo journalism. Right. Can you talk about that development through his stories?
2: Yes. Uh, the the importance of the uh, the temptations of Jean-Claude Killy really cannot be uh, underestimated in the development of his style. I think that's when he first began practicing what I call meta-journalism. He began writing journalism about journalism, where he made the process of journalism kind of the forefront of the story. And what happened here is, I doubt anyone today remembers Jean-Claude Guilly, but he was an Olympic gold medalist uh, from the 1968 Olympics. And he was a Frenchman. And so there was this feeling that uh, he's athletic, and he's handsome, and he's French. He must be cool. he was hired by Chevrolet to do commercials and print ads and so forth. He became kind of a spokesman for Chevrolet and so Playboy magazine assigned Thompson to write a profile of Keeley, and um, they were hoping that they would get Chevrolet advertising out of it. Well, that's kind of funny. Uh, thinking that, looking back, thinking they would hire Hunter Thompson, hoping in some way his work would shill for the company. Uh, he ended up <laughs> following this guy around and he just discovered that he was just deadly dull and he, he not only didn't like Chevrolets, he had contempt for the product. So he was taking the money and running. And so he uh, Thompson wrote a, an accurate profile that showed that and of course it was sent in to, uh, to Playboy, and uh, I believe that's when Hunter uses that great term. It was aggressively rejected. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was so angry about it. Uh, one of his friends, who was an editor of a new magazine, uh guy named Warren Hinkle, uh, he wrote him a letter saying, can you believe these people at Playboy? And he, he called them anemic masturbators. He called them... Uh, <laughs> fish fuckers or fist fuckers I can't remember which I I think the fish one's funnier but he called them all kinds of names in this letter and he said they didn't take the article you know they're swine and they're this and that and so uh, Warren Hinkle said well can I publish it so he published it in his new magazine uh, which was called Scalons Monthly and he published it with the letter that he had written with all this vile language as the introduction to the article (laughs) and uh, that got a lot of attention and while he was going around reporting uh, the Kelly story, he was he was with a Boston Globe journalist named Bill Cardozo, and he ended up using Cardozo as kind of his foil in the article. He would say, you know, he would say after this cocktail party that was supposed to go at, he would get with Cardozo and say, "Good God, what are we going to do? This man is so dull." What are we, you know, and he and Cardozo became kind of these these buddies. It was like Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, and the the magazine that warren hinkle edited scandals monthly really liked that article and almost immediately assigned thompson to go home to louisville and to cover the kentucky derby and in this case they teamed him with an artist who was in the united states for the first time a guy who had never been to the states and so he became the foil for this article and i think the idea of Thompson with a companion is always key to his writing because he he uses himself as the central character and he is is a very self-deprecating presentation of himself but he also needs this this foil and the foil in this case was the Welsh artist Ralph Steadman and again this was an article about trying to write an article in this case it was about the Kentucky Derby and, and Thompson was so sure that he would find you know a certain face for ralph Stedman to draw and it would be the face of a diseased ravaged puffy alcoholic scion of some once great kentucky family so the the article becomes not about the derby but about all the drinking and the debauchery around the derby and him sort of ushering steadman around saying here's the united states this is what we're like <laughs> Stedman, by the way, didn't have his usual artist tools, so a lot of what he drew it was done with lipstick and eyeliner. Uh, but he was sketching the things as he saw, and then the race, the, the actual Kentucky Kentucky Derby kind of takes place off camera. It doesn't even occur in the story. And we come back afterward, and they finally see the face that Hunter Thompson's been looking for to show Ralph Stedman, and it turns out to be the face that Hunter sees when he looks in the mirror. So, the the neat thing about writing this story is that Hunter was once again, as he was with Hell's Angels, trying to write a legitimate a legitimate work of journalism. But halfway through the article, and he's holed up in a hotel room down the street from the editors, uh, halfway through the article, a copy boy shows up from the magazine, and uh, he wants copy. The editors are waiting on this. So he just Hunter just grabs his yellow legal pad, pulls out a few pages of notes, and hands it to the kid. The kid leaves, and Hunter packs his bags, and then he sits there smoking a cigarette, imagining what he's going to do with his life, because his career in journalism is obviously over. When the kid comes back and says, do you have some more? (laughs) And he discovered that they were taking his notes, and Hunter always took really good, thorough notes, but they were taking his notes and publishing verbatim in the magazine. So he finished up with his notes, gave them to the kid, got on the plane, went back to Aspen, still assumed his career was over. And then he started hearing from people who said, well, this is the next step in the evolution of journalism. You know, this is a breakthrough. And it was that Boston Globe reporter, Bill Cardozo, who said, I don't know what the fuck you're doing, but it's pure gonzo. And gonzo is actually apparently a Boston word. (laughs) It means the last one standing at the end of a night of drinking. That's gonzo. So that's where he got his name uh, for what he did. But it also was when he discovered, wow, I can, I can just use my notes. Uh, you know, wow, I can write about how hard it is. In fact, it was Jean-Claude Keeley back on that first story when Hunter Thompson was confessing to him, you're really difficult to write about. He said, well, then why don't you write about how difficult it is to write about me? Bingo. That was mm. the idea. And so whatever Hunter Thompson wrote, it always ended up being a story about Hunter Thompson trying to write a story.
0: At Rolling Stone, um, you mentioned Jan Wenner, Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of what you're saying is reminding me of how Wenner almost didn't trust Thompson uh, as a... It says here that um, they didn't... They knew he might not be a reliable political correspondent going into um, his fear and loathing on the campaign trail, and... But there was something that, uh, something essential about him that kept him around. What do you think, what quality of his writing, and maybe this relates to the fact that he, um, this first draft quality of his writing, but there's something, it talks about, uh, everyone at Rolling Stone, um, similar to how you were mentioning devouring the writing, um, Everyone at Rolling Stone was always reading it and a little jealous and, uh, you know, a little bothered that this new guy uh, had such a magnetism about him. So what what do you think... How can you describe um, what he brought in his stories that is, um, as it relates to... This perspective he he had about everything, but also, how can you characterize the energy he brought? This is something that his um, mother Sandy talks about. Um, She loved. She says she loved the energy Hunter brought into the world. Yeah, that was Uh, his wife, Sandy. His wife, Sandy, right? Right. So, how can you characterize that? That. Essential energy.
2: You know, uh, I talked to uh, several of the editors at Rolling Stone at that time who worked with him, and I didn't really sense jealousy from most of them. But I remember—I think it was Charles Perry, who was one of the first editors, or Ben Fong-Torres—and uh, was it was a, really enjoyed talking to these bylines, you know, that I'd read when I was 14, yeah. 15 yeah. years old. That was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember them saying, like, I read that the beginning, the first section that made it to San Francisco, Fear and Loving in Las Vegas. And they said, suddenly life was more intense. You know, we looked up at the sky and expected a giant pterodactyl to descend on us. And we were just put into this world of, of madness. And I think that uh, he kind of helped the magazine up its game I think that he brought the magazine a lot of attention. Before then, it had this image as a rock and roll magazine, uh, if it had any image at all. And it was known for publishing the famous nude album cover of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and that was it. And you know, they, they had actually been prosecuted in some places for, for publishing that. But Hunter Thompson, kind of with one fell swoop, Changed the magazine from being a magazine about music to something much larger. And the magazine had always been, had, it, it was incorrectly perceived, I think, as an underground magazine. There were a lot of underground papers and magazines then that were kind of dedicated to the overthrow of the United States government and to the war in Vietnam and things like that. I think Jan Winter's purpose from the beginning was to make money. And he did not want to identify with those political elements although he was glad to write about you know marijuana and LSD and rock music and all this kind of stuff but I think when he, he saw Hunter Thompson he was at first utterly mystified by him but then I think he realized this guy is, is, is he has so much energy so much talent I want him so that no one else can have him and he kind of made him he kind of built Rolling Stone around him Now, I don't know how the other... There were a lot of other great writers at Rolling Stone at that time, including one of my favorites, a guy named Grover Lewis, who is totally forgotten today, unfortunately, but an extremely talented writer. I think that uh, Grover Lewis and others were then kind of overshadowed by Hunter Thompson. I think his political reporting... Again, you know, Winner had wanted to stay away from politics, but after Fair Loving, Las Vegas... Uh, Wenner kind of said well what do you want to do and he said I want to cover a political campaign from beginning to end fine you can do it he did send uh, a staff member on the road ostensibly to be his babysitter <laughs> uh, to make sure he made deadline and of course Hunter again in a great generosity gave that guy an idea for a brilliant book that still lives today the book is Timothy Krause's The Boys on the Bus um so he was the guy was much more than a babysitter. He was so unappreciated by by young Winter. But I think Winter really saw uh, Hunter Thompson as his meal ticket. And, you know, he knew that if if he could just control this guy, he could do wonders with him at the magazine. And it turned out to be true. I think Hunter Thompson took that magazine to another level. And particularly during that political campaign, every two weeks, you know, people could not wait to get their hands. On, on what he wrote, and um, you know, it, it, unfortunately, um, his celebrity kind of made it impossible for him to ever be a reporter again. After that campaign, he tried to cover the seventy-six campaign, but we would, you know, whenever he enter a room, the other journalists would turn to him and say, "Can I have your autograph?" So you know, he he became too famous to to be a journalist anymore. But you know that was a golden era, and the collection of his campaign reporting is, has, is in a book with the worst title in the world, <laughs> "Fear and Loathing, colon, on the campaign trial, apostrophe 72. It makes it sound like a relic, whereas I think that's some of his best writing. I would, I've been suggesting to the estate that they package all of Hunter's political writing in one volume. And include that as kind of the centerpiece and I think people would appreciate this isn't just daily reporting, this is some real interesting reporting of of, of the political system
1: I want to pick up on the political angle, uh, the political element of Thompson and how he gets politically activated Mm -hmm. Uh, in 1968 he's at Uh, the Chicago, in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention, and I believe uh, is one of the people who gets abused by the police outside of the stadium, beaten by the police outside of the stadium. And by the end of this book, there's a a quote by, I think it's by Sandy, his wife, um, where she says something to the effect of, you know, people see Hunter S. Thompson and think of this dissident, but it's important that we remember that he was a dissident and he was never disloyal. He was actually, at least from my reading, pretty patriotic, but he was just always trying to use his voice and his platform to, um, to oppose the power. Right. And so can you talk about going back to the 1968 election and the Democratic National Convention, how he ended up finding this space within politics that is somewhat of a paradox, where he's a gun owner and a pacifist and a raging liberal, and how that affects his
2: cultural impact. There's a lot of good things in your question there, and and I should point out first that there's a missing book in his canon, Mm -hmm. and it falls between Hell's Angels and uh, Fair Loving in Las Vegas, and it is a book about precisely what you talk about. Uh, The shorthand title, which if it's ever published I hope they don't use it's Fear and Loathing at the NRA <laughs> it's a terrible title but it's a book about his, the, the people he's loved and admired uh, the Kennedys Martin Luther King Malcolm X and his lifelong fascination with guns and manliness and hunting and all of that stuff and how does he reconcile these things so it's about the gun lobby wow, doesn't that sound contemporary? It's about the NRA, but it's also about these feelings he has as a gun-owning American. And I have not seen it. I just know that this exists. Uh, His literary executor says, someday we'll publish that. And I don't know why they don't publish it now, because it would, you know, Hunter Thompson just had this knack Mm -hmm. of being places. He was in the Watergate the night that was broken into uh, the Democratic headquarters. He wasn't part of the break-in, he was actually in the bar. <laughs> but he always had this knack of being in the right place at the right time, and I would think that, and I also think he has some, there's almost some kind of sorcery or voodoo a lot in his work. He is the column he wrote on deadline, immediately after the terrorist attacks on September 11th, predicted the next 10 years, um, and he wasn't even around for it. He didn't live to see his prediction come true. So I'm interested to hear what he would say mm-hmm. about, uh, about the gun lobby, his affection for firearms uh, and bombs and all that kind of stuff, and how he would reconcile that with the fact that the people he admired and so many people he loved or would care about were the victim, victims of this. So um, that's the missing work. Doug Brinkley, his executive, literary executor, calls that the bridge work, the bridge book, in that it's kind of steeped in more traditional journalism. And, you know, Hell's Angels has a lot of elements of traditional journalism, yet it's also gonzo at the same time. So I would really like to, to see that. Uh, you asked some other questions about the politics, uh, how he... I think Hunter Thompson's loyalty... His loyalties were really to the handwritten documents. He believed in the Declaration of Independence and he believed in the Constitution. And that didn't mean he necessarily, you know, believed in our elected leaders. He was, I think, a, a, a true patriot and, and idealistic about our country. And he hated to see it in the hands of. Uh, Geez, what did he call President Nixon? Greedy little hustlers. Mm-hmm. He hated to see uh, that the caretakers of this great idea were swine. Um, I, you know, I, I hear this a lot from people when they find out uh, that I've written about Hunter Thompson, or I, I get a lot of this from from people online. Oh, what would Hunter do? How would what would Hunter think about Donald Trump? and what would he do now? And I, I know exactly what he would do. He would kill himself all over again because this is so much worse. And, you know, he would... I, I think this would this would break his heart to see what, what had happened to this country and to this, you know, this really pure dream. I mean, the whole idea... We now know, of course, about the hypocrisy of the Founding Fathers, but I tell you, they spoke a good line when they said... All men, that substitute humans, are created equal. Somebody needed to say that. And that's the part that he believed in. Um, I'm not, you know, he was a guy full of flaws. Uh, He was not very good to to women. Let's not forget he grew up in, in Louisville. I'm sure he carried a lot of attitudes we might brand as racially troubling at the very least right. today but I think deep in his heart he really cared about the, the concept of you know he he was obsessed all of his life with the American dream and the American dream to him was the, the dream of personal freedom of a place where people could live and coexist and have a free society and uh, you know maybe maybe it has tinges of what we call libertarianism today but right. he was um you know, he. It, it, I think seeing Nixon elected broke his heart. I really feel that one of the contributing factors to his suicide was the re-election of George Bush, George W. Bush. Sorry, because uh, uh, you know he was. He really thought John Kerry had a chance of being elected. I just I can't imagine his reaction to Trump. I think he would have again taken himself out all over again.
1: An article that I read on the right around the election of Trump, uh, which uh, at least as far as I can tell, you're not too fond of, but it's one of my favorites. Is Fear and Loathing in the Bunker, mm. where he writes about the Nixon presidency in sort of its final days, and he says, uh, "Think about how dangerously close we came to ni- Orwell's prediction of 1984, ten years early."
2: Yeah,
1: and that was written in 1974, and I think he would have that sort of oh, my God, the Orwellian the Orwellian uh, prediction is coming true, response to this whole Trump phenomenon, and also to the phenomenon of social media. I mean, we can't predict what he would say about that stuff. But the stuff that's coming up now, I would imagine he'd have that
2: sort of response to it. Everybody always wants to predict what he would do. And yeah. I, I always say, you know, wait a minute. Yeah. He's an unpredictable yeah, man. Yeah, if there's exactly. anything he can predict, it's yeah. that he's unpredictable. Yeah. But there, there have been a couple of times... Uh, in some of the classes I teach where I will take out a a sizable quote from Hunter Thompson and scrub out all the references to political people he's talking about whether it's Hubert Humphrey or Richard Nixon or whatever just scrub that out which makes it not topical but more timeless and he could be talking about today Uh, so I think he he had an utter distrust for people in politics, and he found in George McGovern, I think, that uh, it sound to him it would be an oxymoron to say an honest politician. Mm. But that's what he found.
0: It seems that um, there's the passage. I think is the famous passage um, from Fear and Loathing, um, where it's the nervous night um, in Las Vegas passage, and. It makes me wonder, along with what seems to be at that time a pessimism in some way about where America was headed—a pretty clearly articulated um, pessimistic view—and I'm wondering Th- this what this is. The wave
2: speech, the place right, where, right, okay, right. Yeah, and so,
0: as that relates to his personal view, because that's a—I mean—that's a deeply personal speech in the sense that he is talking about his old. Uh, glory days or mm-hmm. in San Francisco and um, Berkeley and um, so as it relates to his the personal state of his life at that time what specifically do you think about um, his experience his uh, and his view of America um, as a result of his experiences in Las Vegas how do you think they—basically, what was he pessimistic about, and where did he feel— what did he see that made him feel so so, so clearly um, that we were not headed in a good direction? And what do you feel that direction, what he might have been thinking?
2: You know, I'm not really sure. That's a very good question, a very thoughtful question. I, I think what he saw in San Francisco was a society where there was a lot of uh, sharing and giving— it was the idealized society he never thought would happen. Uh, you know, there, there were the diggers there that were feeding the homeless. Uh, it was the diggers was a, a kind of a counterculture group. Uh, you know, there was uh, obviously love on the streets, uh, and and it just seemed like the the things that people really wanted to believe it turns out could actually happen. And I think when he's in Las Vegas, particularly when he saw the. Uh, the district attorneys' conference on drug abuse and all of the the cops there, and they, you know, they they were they were so completely out of touch with what's happening, and they're talking about ways to make our repressive society more repressive. I think he saw that. Wow, in a in a very short time, we've gone from this wonderful idealistic society that I witnessed and I thought was going to work, and I thought would you know that would spread, and instead, you know, here we have this. Uh, you know, more uh, increasingly politicized, militarized state. I think that's what uh, uh, what he was getting at in that speech, where he talks about uh, his time in San Francisco. That was a high water mark where the wave, you know, rolled and came back. Um, he was very proud of that piece of writing. Obviously, I mean, I think any writer would be. It's so so musical, but it was also a, a pretty so- strong statement of, of why he became so cynical.
1: In terms of a sort of social analysis, I mean, his his gift, I think, was, was being able to be observant, right? I mean, right. Um, even in as far back as, I think, 1963, he wrote that incredible piece, A uh, Southern City with Northern Problems, analyzing Louisville and the racial issues there. Uh, where does he fit in in this 60s literary landscape uh, in terms of you have this whole new journalism movement going on. A lot of people will point to Tom Wolfe, with whom he had a correspondence, but I don't think he met with that much. Right. And people will put him in that camp, and then at least as I conceive it, gonzo journalism is a sort of branch of that new journalism camp. Would you agree with that analysis? And how do you describe that time? And how do you place Hunter Thompson relative to it?
2: You know, uh, it's a very good analysis. I th- I think that this. I always say when the 60s started every journalist wanted to be something else Mm -hmm. and journalism was what they did to pay the bills they all wanted to be the great American novelist or they wanted to be a a poet or whatever and and Hunter Thompson was like that but then he skedaddled to uh, Central America and South America and he really wasn't part of the new journalism revolution which was uh, Norman Mailer, Tom Wolfe uh, Joan Didion, Gloria, uh, her name escapes me. Barbara Goldsmith is who I'm thinking of. Anyway, a lot of people centered around Esquire magazine and New York magazine. And suddenly journalism became the means to an end. You know, hey, this can be my whole career. I don't have to, you know, write the Grand American novel. And I think Tom Wolfe is one of the people who showed that, you know, he wrote the great book of the 60s and it was not a novel. It was a nonfiction book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. So you know, all this revolution was happening, and, and Hunter wasn't there. In fact, there's a character that I think is always overlooked when we talk about this, and uh, it's Terry Southern. And today Terry Southern is remembered as the screenwriter of uh, Dr. Strangelove, and Easy Rider, and uh, The Loved One, and you know, great black humorist. But he wrote a piece in Esquire in 1962 about going to attend uh, a baton twirling workshop for pre-adolescent girls at the University of uh, Mississippi. And I talk about this article as a real breakthrough because again, you remove the byline, it sounds like Hunter Thompson. It's a story about trying to write a story. And it came out in 1962 when Hunter was unknown and living in South America. And, you know, I often think, should I require that? Should I have my class read that? Today it is so utterly offensive. I would be ridden out of town on a rail if I had my class read that. Uh, It's great. It's comical. It is utterly offensive. Because it goes so much into his mind about, you know, what he's thinking about this and that. And so Hunter was removed from this, and therefore wasn't really, wasn't really seen as part of the new journalism movement today, we call it literary journalism. And in a way, that's what made him so different and so pure. And really, he developed his writing style, I think, more through his letters than through his journalism. Mm-hmm. He was trying really hard to be a, a straight journalist for the first few years of his career. But while he was in Central America and South America, he had made an alliance with an editor at the National Observer, which is one of the newspapers I started reading as a kid. It's one of the things that made me love newspapers. And it was seen as the Sunday edition of the Wall Street Journal. And he had never met the editor, so he just started sending in stories and they published them because they, didn't, they couldn't afford a correspondent in those places. And here was a guy sending interesting stories where he's hanging out with uh, smugglers and tin miners and you know, the, the crazy life in the, in the Caribbean. So he sent in all these articles, every article accompanied by a letter. And the letter to the, uh, that he'd write to his uh, main editor, of the, uh, the observer, Clifford Ridley, was um, just kind of no-holds-barred. Hey, Cliff, here's what's up. And it got to the point where Ridley wrote Thompson back and said, listen, your letters are so good. I've, I've taken excerpt from several of them, and I'd like to publish them in the newspaper. And, uh, of course, Thompson said, hello, please do. And, you know, I think that's when he began to realize that his greatest talent came when he spoke in his normal voice, when he didn't try to write
1: Hmm. for
2: the New York Times or Time Magazine or any of these other staid publications, (laughs) when he was himself. And I think that was a very important uh, point for him. And I think that editor gave him that kind of license. So when he came back to the United States, he the National Observer offered him a job just out of politeness. They realized he was probably too weird to ever work in a cubicle. <laughs> but uh he uh, uh you know he he said, Well I'll I'll move to San Francisco. I'll be your San Francisco correspondent. Not that they needed one, but that was a way to deal with it. And again, this is pre Rolling Stone and pre Yon Winter. But I think they also realized, well we got something here. We don't know what it is. We don't really understand this guy. And he's kind of scary, but he's ours. Mm. And so they held on to him for a while after he got back to America. And then mentioning Tom Wolfe, he wrote a book review of Tom Wolfe's first book and he said nice things about it. And one of the editors at the National Observer had worked with Tom Wolfe at the Washington Post a few years before. The National Observer was published out of the Washington area. And the editor said, I can't stand that guy. Uh, Think he said he hated the air he breathed he said I can't stand that guy I'm not going to publish a good review of him so they killed Hunter Thompson's book review and he heard about this from uh, his friend Cliff Ridley the editor there one of the copy editors and so he sent the review and his angry letter to the National Observer off to Tom Wolfe and Tom Wolf had great fun with it because nothing made Tom Wolfe happier than pissing people off and so he reveled in the fact that, oh, they rejected it because they're jealous of me. Mm. And that was the beginning of their friendship. And it was mostly correspondence. But uh, they had uh, a really wonderful, healthy, weird, profane correspondence. <laughs> and, uh, so those, but, you know, Tom, th- there's this giant bush, let's say, growing that's uh, uh, new journalism, literary journalism. And Hunter Thompson is this stock, that's over here. So it's related to. But, you know, people talk about Gonzo journalism, and to me, the best definition of Gonzo journalism is it's whatever Hunter Thompson did. It's like no one else can do it. He's the sole proprietor. So I, I always have students who say, you know, near the end of the semester, and they're writing classes with me. You know, I th- I'd like to do a Gonzo article, and I say, go right ahead. <laughs> And then they they find out they can't do it. Yeah. They they fail, and I say, see, there's only one guy that can write like that. And he's dead. Right. But there's only one person that can write like you. And as corny as that sounds, I think it helps people realize that all of us have a style within us. It just needs to be revealed. And I think Hunter Thompson's style was revealed because he worked with some editors that, that recognized... Right. The talent in him, yeah, he killed the vending machine and got fired. Yeah, he walked <laughs> around the newsroom in, in socks. He got fired from one job for just, yeah, just being yeah. that way. But other editors would recognize this. There's something in this guy. So when people think um, gonzo journalism, there's obviously
0: the association with heavy drug use and Hunter. Um, just reading Fear and Loathing, uh, you see that a big component was. Not only it's a story about telling uh, a story about telling and finding the story, but it's a story about trying to find or tell a story um, while you know you're seeing people, um, you know lizards <laughs> and uh, Visions, you know yeah. the, uh, bats in the sky and all this kind of thing. So you just mentioned later in his career, Hunter almost became too famous to be the journalist he once was. But on the other hand, has the um, this image of the Gonzo journalist. Uh, you know, in in what other ways uh, did he become constrained? Um, in, in there's a biography about him um, by Eugene Carroll, and mm-hmm. the, right away she talks about how her subject should be. It was in the '90s. Um, Hunter is still alive, and it's about how the subject should be dead. And she immediately lists his drug routine, but then um, feels that. And wonders why he's he's keeping this up wonders if it's to maintain um, uh, an image of you know what people know him as what people how people feel he behaves
2: There's no doubt that uh, he was haunted by an image in fact i the epilogue to my book I have this uh, question and answer from an interview with a college athlete, and the question is if you could meet any person in the world, who would you want to meet? And the athlete said, Hunter S. Thompson, he seemed like a pretty crazy guy. <laughs> I think that was his the, the image that, that haunted him. And he, he had created the image himself, and it was based in reality. But in an interview I did with him once, he said something, and I may not have the exact quote, but it was something like, if I, if I did everything I said I did, I'd be dead. Mm-hmm. So he did exaggerate some for ef- effect, but... I have, uh, you know, I interviewed so many of his friends who said, you know, I, I, he drank 24-7, and yet I never saw him drunk. he uh, said people would try and keep up with him, and they, they couldn't. In fact, Hunter could not stand to be around drunks. He would ask them to leave or have somebody get, get him to leave. But this image is what, what haunted him. I mean, he often, I, I say, I think also in the book, that uh, uh, he was the favorite writer for people who didn't read because they knew he was just this crazy man and uh you know i wrote a semi-scholarly kind of serious book about him back in uh, i think 1990 or 91 and then very soon after that came three high profile biographies of him uh, first by eugene carroll then by uh, paul perry and then by peter whitmer and each of them have their their virtues um uh, but the, the issue with all of them is that all three of those writers tried to write like Hunter Thompson, and you just, you know, can't do that. As I said, only one guy can do that. So when he killed himself, I remember I was called the night of by a Los Angeles Times reporter. I knew really well. He had been a student of mine, and, uh, you know, he, he asked a lot about his image and uh, what he was like. But I talked about Hunter as a serious writer. I was interviewed a lot over the next few days, and um, a lot of the questions had to do with the wildness, the craziness, the drug use, the alcoholism, and all this. And I wanted to talk about him as a writer. And I began to see that he was a prisoner of the persona he had created. And that, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but I did notice when I was with him that he would become a character. I remember uh, when I met him, I was to introduce him, uh, and we were going to have an interview on stage at this university where I was teaching. And so we were backstage, and uh, he was a very courtly, southern gentleman type, very soft spoken. Uh, what do you do here? How long have you been teaching? What's your family like? And just like a normal guy. Uh, except he came in with an athletic bag, and you know this was a school in the South, and so he was not allowed to have liquor on stage. But uh, I remember he opened his athletic bag and he parted the clothes, and there was a live beer. I mean, the <laughs> the, uh, the top was off, and he'd obviously drunk some of it, and he was just holding it in the bag between his undies and stuff, and he drank it, and then whoosh, threw the bottle across the room and went into a garbage can. So that was a little bit of his image. But he's a very soft spoken as I said courtly type and then we walked on stage and the people saw him and he changed the way he walked and he you know acted with these sort of sudden movements and he became the character. Right. Uh, I just went to Ireland um, to listen to this guy's uh, dissertation defense. He's written his PhD on what he calls the Hunter figure. Uh, Hunter Thompson's persona as as a you know, as a as a tool of storytelling, and um, you know, I call it I call him Duke. I call him I call him Duke uh, based on Raoul Duke. You know, he became that character, whatever by whatever name, and uh, it was kind of sad in a way. And I talked to a lot of his friends who'd been with him and said, "Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd seen that before. I, I ran into him in San Francisco covering the." democratic convention in 1984 appropriately enough and he was himself and then we were in the press lounge and he was approached by reporters and he he started playing the character again and I think that happened in his writing too in that everyone expected him to be like that Mm -hmm. and I think that's the part that came to really nag at him later in life, yes he had created this great character that was a wonderful storytelling device uh, but it was also a trap you know, I'll think of him uh, the same way I think of Jimmy Buffett, because uh, they w- became friends in the 70s, they had both achieved fame, Buffett was heading one direction and he wanted to, you know, he was just married wanted to raise a family, Hunter was leaving his marriage, so they kind of swapped lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, Buffett went to Aspen and Hunter went to Key West. and. Uh, Actually, he lived in Buffett's apartment, ran up a $15,000 phone bill in one month. But, you know, they, what Buffett had done is he had created this persona of, you know, lovable, kind of goofy, uh, margarita-swilling guy, party boy. And Hunter had this persona of, you know, an angry man, you know, looking for justice in the world and crazed and drug-gobbling and, you know, guzzling booze. One of those is an easier persona to age into, and it isn't hunters, right, so I think he really became the prisoner of his persona and I think again later in his life he would i think he really wanted to do he wanted to be the great American novelist, which is i think why he resurrected the rum diary uh, he did write another novel and maybe another half a novel, but you know that's not what people wanted people wanted the crazed man, and so he gave it to him and right. I think it really haunted him. I mean, his assistant, longtime assistant, something like twenty-four years, told me what she came across him, kind of, you know, whimpering, one morning when he was just sort of saying, you know, like, what have I done? You know, right. I, I had. He didn't put it in, the, in these many words, but she interpreted it to mean I had all my talent. I had all this. I had these gifts, and I did nothing with them. Right. I only used a little bit. Right. And so you got to think, what would it have been like? If he had rewritten his work, if he'd done with his other writing what he had done with Fear and Loathing Las Vegas, what would it have been like if he had tried something different and not fallen into the lazy hillbilly trap? And of course, what if questions are stupid? Kind of like, you know, right. what, if, what if Napoleon had had B-52s at the Battle of Waterloo? Well, it doesn't <laughs> matter because it didn't happen. <laughs>
1: um, Lest we end on a tragic note, I actually I want to ask this question. In in his later life, he sort of became a destination point for a lot of people. Uh, people would stop in Colorado to meet with him. Among which uh, was Douglas Brinkley while he was on his Magic Bus tour with his students. With yeah. With his students, um, so they can meet Hunter Thompson and at, sort of in Hunter Thompson's natural habitat yes, too. Exactly. And so, as a sort of destination point. Intellectually, for any aspiring journalist or writer, what, what doors did he break down? What pathways did he create? Um, and I, I think personally, I'm a huge fan, for instance, of, of Joan Didion. And she comes out of that same era, but didn't really get around to political writing until 19, late 80s, yeah. early 1990s. Right. And then I think about David Foster Wallace who 's this sort of literary figure, but that ends up writing about the McCain campaign in two thousand, so to me, the whole notion of a uh, literary figure writing about politics might be one door that he broke down. What other doors did he break down? What legacy did he leave to the aspiring writers and journalists of today
2: what's well, interesting I, th- I think he he showed that you know there was room for a really wild and original voice, which he had. Mm-hmm. I don't think too many people had written like him although you could see elements in in uh, uh, in Henry Miller certainly of of that kind of writing or Terry Southern I think those are kind of unacknowledged characters in the development of this form of writing Uh, it's interesting that though your comment about him being a destination point I think he did kind of become a sideshow attraction Uh, I know that when Brinkley uh, took his students there that they were all required to line their books up against a tree, and he shot them all with a gun, <laughs> which is the way he would autograph books. Uh, and so, you know, that was sort of the role that was expected of him to be the, the wild and crazy man. Uh, I, I think the main thing he did was just to be a model of um, craziness and that, you know, allowing your, your mind to go free-range, uh, discussing, observing this kind of event, uh, that what people got from it, unfortunately, was they tried to write like Hunter Thompson, mm. and 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 that wasn't the lesson I think he was trying to teach. I think he was always, uh, you know, trying to teach people to uh, to reach inside and find what about them was distinct and original, and uh, and you know, could not be uh, duplicated. Uh, the, one of my favorite things of his. In fact, it's a good time to acknowledge that two of his greatest works, I think, are his collections of letters. Mm. Uh, The first is The Proud Highway, and the second is Fair Loathing in America. The guy kept carbon copies, which is, of course, an outdated concept today, but he had copies of everything he wrote via correspondence from the time he was 15. And I remember that after Hell's Angels was published in 1967, a kid wrote to him and said you know i want to be in a motorcycle gang can you hook me up can i and i want to i want to ride with the hells angels and the the letter he wrote back to the kid was okay do you really want to do that do you want to join this group where you have to have undying loyalty and you have to do what they say like this or do you want to be an individual do you want to follow what's in your heart not the heart of someone else and i thought First of all, I thought, in terms of overall life advice, what a great kind of fatherly, parental sort of thing to do mm-hmm. uh, to 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 say that to the kid. But overall, that was kind of advice to everyone else, you know. Like, I'm an individual, uh, you know. They broke the mold, then they made me, you know. That's what you need to be. We're we're not a nation of sheep. We shouldn't be. We should embrace each other for our differences. And so in that sense, I think he's, uh, he's speaking a lot for not just the diversity in the way that we often think of it in terms of the demographic uh, diversity, but also the diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. I think nothing engaged him more than a good conversation with someone with whom he fundamentally disagreed.